You may have woke up and read this headline from the Wall Street Journal. Pope Francis softens Vatican's ban on blessing gay couples. What? Myself and five other cardinals are dubious. Cardinal Sarah, Burke, Zen, and two others formally submitted five questions to Pope Francis, one of which on guidance for Catholic priests and controversial same-sex blessings. We cut to the core of Pope Francis's answers and how we ended up with some shocking headlines. Back in the home front, chaos reigns as Kevin McCarthy is ousted as Speaker of the House. Did Matt Gates make the right move? And who could be the next lucky Republican to try and maintain order in the House? Or maybe it's time to just pull the fire alarm and exit. I don't know. All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. I'm joined by Erica and Josh this week. And Josh, I believe you had a word to describe uh, what this week in news was. What did you say? Just a feast. There's so much going on and it's hard to make sense of it all. That's what we're going to try to do this week here on Loopcast, but it's like a fire hose. It's crazy. Josh, bon appetit. We're going to get right into it. Uh, Erica, I'm going to start with you. We had secular news outlets release the headline, Pope Francis softens ban on same-sex blessings uh, for Catholics. And whenever you see something from the Wall Street Journal, you know that Pope Francis, unfortunately, has probably said something that would make them believe that to be true. And so we have this interesting odyssey with the dubia sent out by the cardinals, and then it eventually gets Pope Francis and this answer back and forth. Very confusing for a lot of people, but we want to make it crystal clear. Erica did the research. What was the original dubia and how did we get to that Wall Street Journal headline? Yeah, so this is going to be a long journey, but bear with us because all the parts are really important. So first, just to start off with, if you're not sure what a dubia is, it literally is a, it's the Latin word for doubts, or you can translate it to question seeking clarification. And they're actually a regular feature of communication uh, between the Vatican, uh, the different dicasteries and offices and local bishops who are seeking clarification on points of church teaching. Usually they're not that big a deal. So it'll be something like, can a minor basilica be a cathedral, etc. So that's your normal like sort of level of dubia. Usually they're submitted by bishops or conferences or religious communities, uh, but any Catholic can send them in. We had some lay Germans send in some dubia uh, a couple of years ago asking if the church in Germany was in schism or not, and it was duly answered no. Uh, format is usually a question. So the format is the bishop or the conference submit a question that can be answered with yes or no, because again, the point of submitting a dubia is seeking clarity, and that's going to become key. So how did we get from Latin words and long definitions and minor basilicas to the Pope and same-sex gay marriage blessings? Question mark. Well, last July, ahead of the synod, Uh, Five cardinals, they were written by two of the cardinals, but five signed on, submitted dubia directly to the pontiff himself, Pope Francis. And those five cardinals were Walter Cardinal Brandmuller, Raymond Cardinal Burke, who our listeners are probably very familiar with, uh, Cardinal Iniguez, and Cardinal Seurat, which, again, you're all probably familiar with him, and also Cardinal Zen from China, who is known um, for spending most of his life in prison because of the Holy Faith. Um, And they revealed just this last week that back in July, they submitted five questions to the Pope regarding, and I'm quoting from them, 
statements on serious matters contrary to the doctrine of the church multiplying ahead of the synod. Now, why did they go public this week? That's the big question. Well, Francis apparently replied back in July, which is a surprise in a way, because you might remember back in 2016, there were four famous dubias submitted to Pope Francis after Amoris Laetitia came out on the question of marriage, and they were never answered. So it's <laughs> kind of shocking in a way, given his pattern here, that he answered them almost right away. They chose to make public, not the, not the answers, but they chose to make public the fact that they had submitted questions um, this week. They stated in their, in their uh, not a press release, but their statement to the faithful, that his response, quote, only increased their concerns. So they resubmitted questions to him in a, a yes-no format to make it easier. Like, let's clarify, the, like, let, we'll make it easier. We'll make these questions, we'll, we'll condense them. So they, and More then they- questions, I mean, Erica. Yeah, here we go. An oh, asking, go ahead, Josh. We can take it, a little break. Give me, let me have a coffee. I need, need a break, caffeine. Yeah. Quick. Whoa. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to ask a simple yes or no question to a Jesuit. I mean, it goes, ah. <laughs> it goes beyond saying electing a All Jesuit right, a pope was the greatest idea anyway. A little niche humor to, uh, to break up the story. Okay. Yes. So what did the Erica, yes- you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank up. you. Applause is welcome. All right. Well, and so I just, what did real the... quick, before you go back, <laughs> no, real quick- <laughs> It was it was considered unpopular for, uh, for Pope Francis not to answer the previous dubia. So very he, much he got the word that he better respond to this one. But go ahead, keep going. Okay, so here we go. They also said that they were publishing their questions um, due to statements from cardinals and bishops themselves contrary to the doctrine of the Church. Um, he did not respond to their satisfaction, and they are quote again. This is important. We have now decided to make our letter public so that the faithful do not fall into error. And those of you who have studied theology, error is a big word. All right. So we're talking like errors as close as you can get without saying these are heretical. Okay. All right. So what did they say? The yes, no questions are, and these are condensed. I tried to be as accurate as possible without spending an hour explaining these to you. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> is it possible for the church to teach doctrines contrary to those she has previously taught in matters of faith and morals? Super fundamental question. Number two, is it possible that in some circumstances, a pastor could bless unions between homosexual persons, thus suggesting that homosexual behavior as such would not be contrary to God's law and the person's journey toward God. That's where the Wall Street Journal and all the secular outlets and Catholic outlets came That's their in. favorite one. That's their yeah. favorite, right? That's what they glommed mm -hmm. onto. But it actually yep. gets more interesting. Number three, does the teaching that every sexual act outside of marriage, and in particular homosexual acts, constitutes an objectively, objectively grave sin against God's law, um, and does that teaching continue to be valid? Number four, here we come to the Synod. Will the Synod of Bishops, in the doctrinal or pastoral matters on which it will be called to express itself, thereby be expressing the supreme authority of the Church? So will the documents coming out of the Synod be an expression of the magisterium of the Church? That's an important question. Two more. Number five, could the Church in the future have the faculty to confer priestly ordination on women? And six, can a penitent, while admitting a sin, 
who refuses to make in any way the intention to not commit it again, validly receive absolution? These are all really big questions, um, and that was the form that they, they presented to the Pope as a clarification to their earlier questions. Yeah, this isn't cathedral uh, talk, you know, this isn't, can we yeah. share this cathedral? This no, isn't whatever. like, this can is I like, call my basilica a cathedral? This is... Right, groundbreaking, yeah. fundamental, absolutely core to what Catholics believe type And I question. do just want to point out, these are questions to which even 60 years ago, Catholics would have been like, no, yes, yes, no. You know, like, it, it, these aren't, it, it's almost shocking that they have to be, it is shocking that they have to be asked and reading them was, was difficult for sure. Well. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is why a lot of conservatives and traditionalists warned, you know, three, four years ago, when we had this debate about taking <clears throat> a scissors to the catechism and cutting out the, the church's longstanding teaching that capital punishment is a justifiable solution and changing that to make to, you know, John Paul II had basically still upheld the teaching on capital punishment, but basically put so many restrictions on it that it was effectively neutralized, and he thought it could never really be used in modern society, da-da-da. But Francis took it a step further, and I thought it was a breach from the gospel and from longstanding church teaching, because he said it was basically inadmissible. And I don't... I what does that word even mean? It's not even a moral theology term that no one's ever used this. It's, you know, it's like you're using, again, language that was like a courtroom, like, oh, well, actually, you can't, sorry, you can't talk about that evidence, that glove, because it's inadmissible. <laughs> what, what does that have to do with, that doesn't make any sense. But the whole problem with that is, even if you don't care about the death penalty, even if you think, I'm not really a big fan of it, I'd, I'd be okay if we got rid of it. That really wasn't the point. The point was, as we're getting at these questions, can the church teach something contrary to what it had taught for so many centuries on an important matter, uh, on an important principle of faith and morals? That's why everyone was on, you know, like a lot of conservatives or traditionalists were warning this. Everything they're doing on this death penalty stuff is a dry run. It's a rehearsal for this, and here we are. Right. Well, and here we are. Here's the twist. So the cardinals of the dubia make, make public that they've submitted these questions. They did not publish Francis's initial responses that had sparked the follow-up yes-no dubia, although the first ones were yes-no dubia. I mean, anyway, I digress. In response, the cardinal prefect for the dicastery of the faith, Tucho Fernandez, and he's brand new, and I also want to point out the irony that until two years ago, the Dicastery of the Faith was the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So Tucho Fernandez is essentially in the office held by Cardinal jo Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger under John Paul II. So Tucho Fernandez comes out with this statement, quote- Talk about a downgrade. Oh, Lord. Here we go. <laughs> I don't even want to read this. Okay. Quote, the Pope has already answered the dubia of these cardinals. They have not published the answer of the Holy Father, who, despite his many occupations, took the trouble to answer them. Instead of publishing those answers, they are now making public new questions, as if the Pope were their slave for errands. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. You know. So he went ahead and dropped the Pope's 
response in Spanish. So now we have it. So I talked to my good friend Tom Hoops at Benedictine University. Oh, Benedict, shout Benedictine out to Tom. College, sorry. College. Love yeah. You, and uh, I, I, this was a few years ago. We were talking about the dubia. And the concern that Tom had is like, wait a minute now. It sounds like such a smart idea to have this dubia of all these questions. But the problem is, what happens if the Pope answers it? I thought, you know what? That's a good yeah. point. You that know, is and, a good point. And after a while, I just thought, yeah, we, we got away with asking the questions without him responding. And, I, and of course, the answer then would be when a new pope gets elected, that's hopefully, you know, rock solid on the teachings and will up, uphold what the church teaches. That, that new pope could just answer the previous dubia and say, ah, yeah, actually, yes, of course, da 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 da, and answer it up and down the line. But the problem is, you submit a new dubia, and unfortunately, he answered it. That's oh my not goodness! Kind of a nightmare scenario. I'm dubious. Yeah, but Erica, if we could, so he he gives this answer, and I want to give full charity, of course, yeah. Pope Francis for uh, what his responses were. Of course, like that kind of snide comment from uh, the dicastery was uh, interesting, but he did respond, and the the responses were made public, and that is what you know the Wall Street Journal, NPR, they all latched on to. Exactly. So what what specifically? I, there was kind of a character to me to all of the answers that legalese is a good way of putting it, but which ones really stuck out to you, like how he answered certain questions? Right. Um, they were all, I read through the whole thing. I read two different English translations. We don't have an official English translation yet. Uh, the overwhelming impression was, one, this is not yes or no answer, and two, it leaves the door so wide open for answers like, yes, the church is teaching on faith and moral can change, morals can change. Or the, the answer in particular, I will read out loud to the Well, he was um, unlikely to say it like that, of course, but yeah. Right. He didn't say it like that, but you can see, and, and, we, and the, the subsequent coverage of it from leftist Catholic media and the secular media played this out perfectly. His answer to the question of same-sex blessings he talks first about how marriage is an indissoluble union between a man and a woman. So he says, this is the church's teaching on marriage. But then in the next section, he says, quote, therefore, pastoral prudence must be adequately, must adequately discern whether there are forms of blessing requested by one or more persons that do not convey a mistaken concept of marriage. For when a blessing is requested, it is expressing a plea to God for help, a supplication to live better, a trust in a father who can help us live better. Um, and so the conclusion to be drawn from, in particular, his answers to question two on same-sex blessings is that while the doctrine hasn't changed, the teaching on marriage hasn't changed, pastorally, individual priests or bishops have the prudential you know, leeway latitude to make a call and say, yeah, I'll bless this. Um, and that is brand new. That's, that's not that is a new opening, right. and, and so when the secular headlines, the, it goes against what the Vatican has said even during this pontificate. Right, exactly. The concern I have with this, of course, is now you're muddy the water. Like, is 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 God, is the Church blessing homosexual unions? That's, Sodomy, right, and, and the behavior associated with it, as you say, and and also, by the way, a little zinger from someone this. Uh, pundit in, in Poland, she's like, wait a minute now. So the church that we have now, a priest can use his own discretion to bless a same-sex couple, but that same priest cannot use his own discretion 
to celebrate the mass in Latin. Like, wait, what? And I'm not even, again, not even a water Latin mass guy, but it is kind of curious what this pontificate is, is so vehemently against and what it seems to be like, go ahead, let's open the door. Let's be in favor of yeah. this. Yeah. I'm just thinking, but I'm just thinking practically of like how confusing this would be inside of a local church where there's someone that is living a very outspoken homosexual life and they get a very public blessing um, holding hands with their same sex partner that they're, they're very upfront about their lifestyle with them. What kind of scandal that could cause to the church community, people's uh, vision of Catholicism and to all people that are living uh, same sex attracted lives that have followed the catechism, that have sacrificed, that have listened to church teaching essentially to see this must, I always think back to how insulting that really must be to them. But just to make it more practical, like that is a real result of what was just said here. And I think that's why, to the credit of the Cardinals, they're saying, hey, this needs to be made public. This isn't something that could just be handled in-house anymore because we genuinely fear for error to be happening across the world. And it, and it sure looks like it could be happening here. It's, it's just the baseline. Yeah. And I, uh, I take your point. I take your point, Josh, you know, back in 2016 with the dubia, I also had some concerns about should we, yeah. If we ask the questions, what if he answers? Um, but at this point, I think what the cardinals were saying was this confusion is so public and so rampant that it would be better to to shed light on it. Sunshine's the best disinfectant. I hope that that's true. It's a prudential call on their part. Um, but it is it is very shocking to actually read the responses. Um, Roger Roger Severino had a good take on this. He he's uh, over at Heritage Foundation. He wrote, as is typical with Pope Francis, he acknowledges objective morality and doesn't change any church teaching, but uses ambiguous language about wholly unspecified hypotheticals that people who clearly want to change church teaching will seize upon to confuse multitudes. And well, and the people who want to clearly change church teaching would it seem to it be the Holy Father himself as well. I have to yeah. say it. It does seem that way. It's I hard mean, to get around that conclusion. Yeah. I mean, right. again, this is like the Jesuits, when they were founded, were were so on fire with the Lord and and just amazing um, at spreading the faith. They were an instrumental part of the Counter-Reformation. But right now, the, the story of the Jesuits over the last 70 years has been to water down and weaken church teaching in every way. And it's just, it continues. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I think it points to this sort of divorce that we see between um, church teaching and doctrine and what the church has said definitively, and then how we actually live our lives. And in an authentic Christian life, the two are one, right? Yes, how you integrated. Pray, what you believe, how you act are all integrated. But the Jesuitical approach is to divorce all three of those and right. to say, we can, we can isolate it over here. So you can't call me a heretic because I said, I believe everything the church teaches, but there's this pastoral concern that's like your get out of jail free card and you can do whatever you want. Well, and precisely and, um, because they know the younger people come up and they see this attempt to divorce and, and, and separate all these things and they're not integrated and they think of it as a farce and they go along yeah. with what the main culture is doing. And it's not a feast. It's a cafeteria. It's like, oh, I like that. I like that. I don't like that. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't even talked about the climate change comments. Oh. I mean, that's a, a whole other can of worms. When you talk about feast, it's not necessarily a good thing to feast on, but it just seems odd. So we have like Catholics concerned with 
the moral teachings of the church basically falling apart. And then Pope Francis went out of his way to basically say, I'm, I, I got to read the exact quote because it was so. <laughs> Just give some context, though. So he dropped a new encyclical. Give them give us the context, Pogo. New encyclical. You, you, you go for it. I Timed it for uh, the feast of St. Francis of Assisi. He's the patron saint of ecology. <laughs> the patron saint of ecology. I'm not sure if he that's Francis's favorite title, St. Francis's favorite title, but uh Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was Pope John Paul II who gave him that title. So <laughs> it's true, it's true. I, Quote It is no longer possible to doubt the human anthro- anthropic origin of climate change. I feel obliged to make these clarifications, which may appear obvious because of certain dismissive and scarcely reasonable opinions that I encounter even within the Catholic Church. Pope yeah, Francis. He means people like me. That's scarcely okay. I'm reasonable. used to it by now. <laughs> you are scarcely reasonable, Mercer. Come on, man. Which is like, <sighs> I guess, fine if, if you want it. But it, 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 how could someone look at this objectively and not see why people would be frustrated? Hearing such extreme, nasty language when there's literally, like, there's the other side where, like, we can't even get clarification on basic church teaching publicly. But we're getting yelled at for not doing enough on climate change, not acknowledging human. I mean, Pope Francis just took part in the um, the Clinton Foundation uh, event in which he talked to Bill Clinton about climate change, this and that. I'm like, well, the people that he associates with are just so bizarre to me. I, I don't understand. I, it should make more sense understanding his background, but I, every time he does it, I'm like, He's going why to would the you margins, go out of your way Tom. to hang out? Going to the margins. Right, and these people are all taking their, their, uh, their jets out to, like, weren't they bragging about a carbon neutral is the synod carbon neutral or something like that? I, I remember yeah, seeing like, something. It's like, that's their concern. It's not actually... And plus, yeah, all those jets, I'm sure, well, are going to be nice carbon, and of course, carbon neutral. Anytime, you know, a bishop, let's say like the Bishop of Cleveland, came out with a church teaching recently that was really good, talking about how God made us male and female, and therefore, you know, this radical trans movement that is, is against, you know what it means to be a human person. And, and he just explained church teaching very well. And everyone, all the liberal Catholics were up in arms. Like, oh, how could he dare do this thing? And, and people in the, in the schools were against it and all this stuff. How dare he promote these policies? Wait, are we against, are we against our, our shepherds promoting specific po- public policies? And then they turn around and now they're <laughs> celebrating Pope Francis basically, you know, very specific climate policy. Yeah, like basically. There are some I mean, specifics. He gives a little <laughs> love letter to the Green New Deal, and they're all in favor of it. So, again, it's almost like the left is full of garbage on this stuff. Almost. They, yeah. <laughs> almost. Right. Imagine that. But yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're continuing to cover the Synod. We actually have a team over there right now, and we're going to be getting updates. If, you, if people have noticed in the loop, we have a little Synod corner, which has been really cool. I've actually really enjoyed that myself. So uh, if you're not in the loop, get in the loop, sign up. What are you doing here? It's our morning newsletter, but we have that section. We will have that section going forward throughout the Synod. So look out for that, and we will keep you updated on the Loopcast with more updates here. I don't know if we have any, any wrapping it a bow Synod, I like, <laughs> synod section. I think I'm burned out on Synod. <laughs> well, I think the biggest okay. thing. There's no bows. There's no I think the biggest here. thing to think about with regards to the Synod and also with you know, the Pope's answers on the dubia, you know, there's a lot of Catholics over the last 20, 30 years who took a lot of comfort in that, the promise that the, you know, the gates of hell would not pr- prevail against the church and that, you know, the church is prevented from teaching error. And, you know, I, this is always, I have to say, the bare 
minimum, right? You know, it's like, oh, well, my mom and my dad, you know, they're not cheating on other people. Like, oh, good. I'm glad they're not committing adultery. Like, that's the bare minimum. Like, we would want a church that was pastoral, that actually cared about its flock, you know? So like, oh, well, the Pope and these bishops aren't, you know, in total moral, you know, moral error and teaching bad things. Like, great. But if they're, if, if what they're saying is leading to massive confusion, then we're talking about people that are being led astray and souls that are going to make horrible decisions. And, th- and there's a lot of people today that basically think that the current Pope is given a wink and a nod. If you're a you know, same-sex couple, go ahead and, you know, the church still loves you. Do whatever you want to do, essentially. Even though he's not specifically saying that, it's a counter-teaching in a way. Officially, on paper, church teaching hasn't changed, but a lot of people are going to be led astray. That's a concern. Right. And I think yeah. that that's there. We were talking about this getting ready for the show. Um, the idea that the when we talk about the gates of hell, right, it's really comforting to be like, hey, okay, the gates of hell are not going to prevail. But one of our colleagues, um, Josh Rezeshek, he was pointing out that when we're talking about the gates of hell, it's not that like somehow Satan's coming in at the church, although, you know, you can make the argument, but, but that verse in particular, it's not that Satan's coming in at the church and we have these impregnable walls and shields. When we talk about the gates of hell, it's talking about the Catholics, it's talking about St. Michael and the Archangels, it's talking about Jesus Christ going to the gates of hell through the jaws of death and martyrdom, um, going to the gates of hell and prevailing over them and snatching souls out of the hell that so many souls are living in right now because they're lost in error and here sin. Here on earth, right. Um, here on earth, exactly. So it's, it's a call, it's a clarion call that look like we have to get out there and, and kudos to the bishops and the cardinals who are trying to get out there to, to dispel error, to clarify this is the good life. This is the flourishing life that Jesus Christ offers to us. Yes. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the cardinals asking these questions, against great bishops. And this bishops. is like, a church. Yeah. This is a church that cares about souls. It's not just a nonprofit organization that, you know— charity soup kitchen all yeah i own. think that that's one of the 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 sticking points with the way that that um many bishops including the the um, bishop fernandez there characterizing catholics who have these concerns as well they're just married to this rigidity and they're married they're they're just clinging to this past when these rules were applicable or something oh, rules but rules it's rules. not that break. at all it's <laughs> rules schmules. i want to say <laughs> souls and sometimes rules help with that um, I'm a I mother. I, know, I saw that. Uh, I saw that. 80, uh, Matt Walsh said that uh, '80s church ladies that people complained about were right about basically everything. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't like, that uh, there's, special? There's a point there, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and you know, this is a good transition because uh, we're going to point out a win of the week here. Or yes. We wanna, have some positive energy. Pull us out. So uh, you you mentioned the Bishop of Cleveland coming out with that really awesome uh, teaching on. Uh, the dignity of man and woman, essentially. And so we saw, and this is why this is important, because Tennessee and Kentucky bans on transgender procedures for minors uh, were upheld in a federal court. So it was ruled, uh, the federal appeals court upheld the ruling that it was illegal. And it does make me think that the church, the church should be a leader on this front, right? Because we have the playbook, we have, we have an understanding of the human person and human dignity that's grounded in years and years and years of intellectual tradition and, of course, the truth in Jesus Christ. 
So when other people are confused about this issue and there, there's a lot of debate, it's important to have the church be, I think, a beacon of light here. So people like that, when the bishop speaks out with that kind of clarity, when your local pastor works with people that are confused, like these are the results of this because you need to win culturally before you can start seeing stuff like this upheld politically. So uh, really happy to see that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this happens elsewhere. I, I do see something like this eventually getting to the Supreme Court just because there's been a Probably. lot of contradictory rulings exactly. across the way. And that's usually when it ends up with the Supreme Court. So hopefully it gets there when the Supreme Court is in where it is right now, because I, I don't know. I feel pretty good about Supreme Court justices. Thank you, Trump. But uh, we're going to get into the, uh, man, this is like a little soap opera, huh? Going on yeah. in the hill. We have one glory uh, to Congress. the next. Here we go. <laughs> so here's, here's, here's the real story. So last week we said, hey, we're going to keep you updated on the spending bill. The government might be shut down the next time we talk to you. Uh, indeed, that is not the case. Uh, the government is still functioning. So we were going to be like, functioning well, if it's might still be functioning, a strong word. Functioning, I just you know, okay. want to throw that out there. Don't, don't pull the fire alarm on me okay, right now. Okay, sorry about that. I won't interrupt. I won't interrupt. All right. I'm going to keep trying to talk. So uh, no fire alarm. Uh, so the government, we were going to be like, hey, this is how they passed this bill. Okay. And so it turns out Speaker McCarthy, he did indeed make some kind of deal with the Democrats. We're going to get into that. That apparently cost him his job as the speaker. He's no longer the speaker. That's an interesting saga. Now we get to the place where, where do we determine the speaker? So let's go back to the beginning. Josh, how did we avoid a government shutdown? What deal was made? Yeah. So Speaker McCarthy went to the Democrats and said, let's just fund the government for the next 45 days. Um, I think he would have been able to get a better deal, but the conservatives thought that the deal that he had wasn't good enough. And so in, because he couldn't count on like a seven or eight conservative votes there, he had to get the votes necessary to open up the government another way. And we got even worse of a deal. I'm sympathetic to the conservative arguments, but, um, you know, he cut a deal with the Democrats and that was too much for the hardliners. And what ended up happening is the bill gets passed, the House and the Senate over the weekend. So it's going to fund the government for, the, you know, for it's a 45 day clock from, you know, September 30. And uh, then Matt Gates from Florida, one of these, you know, seven or eight conservatives really frustrated with the deal said, I'm going to call for a motion to vacate the chair. And the thing to understand is that the way the House works the, the office, the constitutional office of the Speaker of the House is elected by the entire body, which is different than the Senate. The Senate, uh, the Senate majority leader is only elected by the majority party and the minority party selects their leader. And that's how it goes. But at all 435 members of the House can vote on the Speaker. And the problem is there's only a five seat majority. And so when Kevin McCarthy was the guy who was going to be the, the Republican candidate for speaker back in January. He could not get the support of these like seven or eight conservative guys. And uh, they kept saying no. And it went ballot after ballot after ballot. And finally, they finally, you know, like, here are a list of demands. And after, you know, whatever it was, 25 some ballots, he finally says, OK, fine, whatever. I'll take the deal. I just get this over with. I'll become speaker. And one of the planks in there was. Um, that o only one person would be able to call for a motion to vacate the chair of the office of the speaker, which is basically saying a vote of no confidence. And if a majority of the house doesn't want this guy in, he's out. Well, that's what happened. Gates, <laughs> I, did, I ultimately thought McCarthy would barely prevail, but 
at the end of the day, there was about uh, seven or eight uh, conservatives in the House who are just like, I'm done with this guy. And I, I did you think that Democrats would save him or no? It would be no, not no, enough no, Republicans. No, no. Would vote. I mean, th- there's no incentive. He made for the, friends. Yeah. There's no incentive for the the you know the, the Democratic Party to rescue you. And like, the problem is like they probably offered. They said we'll we'll save you, but we want these three things. And if McCarthy said yes to that, then he was going to be gone within a week anyway. So I think that was an yeah. It was a no win scenario at that point. He had to just write it out and hope that Republicans are like, look. This has never been done before, and if this becomes a new thing, this is going to be a problem for every possible Republican speaker. And I ultimately, if I were living in the House, I would not have voted to kick him out. But I understand the frustration with a lot of Republicans because there has been a massive gap between Republican voters and the their elected representatives, the people who are supposed to lead the party, you know, for so long, people like George W. Bush, Paul Ryan, uh, Mitt Romney, John McCain, they're people who just basically hate everything about what their voters stand for, and they're totally embarrassed by them, and they don't want to talk about the social issues, and they don't want to talk about these cultural issues like CRT and all that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, gosh, really? We just want to cut corporate taxes. That's in bomb other foreign countries. That's all we in want to do. <laughs> and Republicans are like, dude, like China is eating our lunch, you know, and, and our manufacturing base is being gutted and cities are being destroyed and families are being ripped apart. And, you know, you know, uh, and all you say is just the, the bare minimum, like, well, you know, like, for example, on abortion issue for the longest time, Republicans would only say, I believe in the dignity of human life. And pro-lifers mm-hmm. are so used to getting zero. They're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Yeah, and Donald right. Trump, who's Scrap. like, you know, again, not the super awesomest moral fiber. Oh, and he's the one that our, our resident Trump simp. That's right. Yeah, I love <laughs> that. I love that. And then the, the debate in 2016 the against Hillary Clinton gave the most pro-life answer in a in a public presidential debate I'd ever heard. He's like, we're t- you know, babies are seven, eight, nine months. Surely we should be against that. I mean, it's just like he said so commonsensical. That it was, and again, by the way, that can't be said enough because the vice president of the United States, just about every Democratic politician, they keep denying that even late-term abortions even exist. Like, why why are they denying that it happens? Because Americans still get very disturbed by this notion that a baby in the seventh month or eighth or ninth month could be murdered. So, you know what? Maybe we need to talk about that more. Anyway, that's it. So, Josh, can can I ask you... I want to ask you a specific question about uh, Matt Gates because he brought up something that you've brought up on this podcast, and I know there's a lot of interesting strategy when it comes to the broader makeup of the House, but he said he was frustrated that there's not line item v- voting for spending bills, and that was something that I think was promised to him by McCarthy back in January, and I know it's something you've talked about we should go back to, this line item voting. Do you think that was actually legitimate or that's like a pipe dream that's never going to happen? So he's using it as a club. I mean, I guess the thing is, we, you know, the one of the things that Mark McCarthy did that was very good was to, I mean, this recent bill was to a 45 day band aid. I, I get that. <laughs> but they did do a lot of progress on passing separate appropriations bills, like 12 separate appropriations bills instead of these like ugly continuing resolutions or omnibus bills that just, you know, one vote for a million things. And that's terrible. Um, it's better to have 12, you know, appropriations. But 
yes, I would love to take that next step. Like, it would be nice to actually have Congress start to debate things. And here's the thing that conservatives need to realize. If we call for separate votes on things, don't assume we're going to win these votes, you know? But it would be nice, like, to have, you know, in an, an appropriations bill to say, hey, maybe we should not have, you know, funding for drug needles in this bill. You know, have separate votes on this stuff to make it embarrassing for Democrats or liberal Republicans to vote for stuff that's terrible. I would like that. But just know, if you do this, there will be votes that you think, oh, we'll surely win this, and you will lose some of those votes. Exactly. But the point isn't that we're going to win every single line item. The point is to reorder the process, to re to get the process back to an actual democratic process where our elected representatives are actually voting on bills that affect us. Doing their job. Right, they're doing their job and they're governing. Something that uh, with this whole drama with McCarthy really stuck out to me is that how important that midterm election was, (laughs) that the reality is he probably, McCarthy probably made promises last January to the conservative branch to get elected that there was no way he could have he could follow through on or he could um, give up because we just I think don't even he have, would admit that and he would admit that right and so Gates yeah. coming back and being like okay you didn't give us these things it, the whole the whole deal was was fraudulent in a way that got McCarthy there in the first place and and again yeah. the frustration that I feel is that the the Democrats are not there at this point in history they are not behaving this way towards each other. Whereas the Republican Party, they're just tearing, tearing the party apart. They're fighting internally. The Democrats are sitting back and just eating popcorn and being like, watch them destroy themselves. This is fun. And the kind of... Well... I, I would love for the Freedom Caucus to be GOP in the GOP Civil War, right? Right. Josh, let me, let me ask you this as well, because we often talk about how there's a lot of things to learn from Nancy Pelosi of all people. Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House for the how only many years? person who wanted to be Speaker of the House. <laughs> she, right, for, and loved for, it. She had many years. She she's probably it. the most effective speaker in you know at least a generation, maybe two. She's, I, of course, so horrible. How was she? But. How was she able to keep her job for so long? Whereas, like, we're looking with McCarthy. It's like, dang, he lost it in you know six months or something like that. First yeah. speaker ever to be ousted. I mean, we lost Boehner, we lost Gingrich. Like, they all resigned. So, yeah, what was it about Pelosi? What was the longevity? Yeah, how would you do it? Well, the problem right now, you know, the Democratic caucus is relatively united because they want to, you know, increase the amount of spending on government. And government is their agent of change. And so they want more spending. You know, they're all kind of in unity on this. Like, they want abortion. They want to promote, you know, same-sex stuff and, and trans stuff. So there's no real fundamental disagreement like you know we want the government to to promote uh you know electric cars and we want all this stuff there's not there's there's broad consensus on the republican side there is a big uh debate and it's been going on you know since donald trump went down the escalator there's a big debate in the gop between those who want to remain the have the republican party that was from you know i call it the 2004 gop where, you know, it's like pro-business, uh, aggressive foreign policy, and, you know, on paper in favor of social issues and cultural issues, but don't really feel unseemly to talk about it and don't want to emphasize it. And uh, now you have, a, you have um, a lot of people who want 
uh, a more of a nationalist economic policy that's you know against free trade with China because we don't think it's really free. Uh, they're like not ashamed to talk about the pro-life issues, and uh, you know it's not like they're in favor of increasing taxes or something like that. But that's just not the biggest priority. And so you're seeing a lot of this um, uh, chaos, I guess, in a sense, and uh, infighting on the GOP because there's some Republicans who really just feel at the end of the day that their heart's really more like they're basically moderate Democrats. And uh, it's a big fight. Um, and, and it's, I, it, you know... And, not that I'm the not that I'm the joker, because I, I have another question for you, but I, I almost am siding with the... I feel in my heart siding with the chaos because I am very frustrated with many Republicans that represent us that don't have na our national interests in heart, in my opinion. They're, they don't support a nationalist economic policy. They just want to go fight foreign wars and throw us at it. Well, I I'm not I'm not for that personally. Yeah. So if we would have kept McCarthy as the speaker, it almost feels like that's pro status quo, pro status, these 2004 Republicans. I know there's probably negatives to not having a speaker right now, but to me, Matt Gates, of course, he's in a safe Florida district, so he doesn't really have much to lose, but he kind of represents, I think, the anger of a lot of people. I'm not even saying he's, I, I, don't, I don't, can't speak for his character, but I think that, isn't it a good thing that there are kind of a few people in Congress right now that are so angry at the status quo that they're willing to break it? I guess so. I mean, it, but the concern I, I saw Representative Andy Barr from Kentucky, he's Republican. He was on uh, Brett Beer's uh, special report last night, and he was saying, look, let's not forget that McCarthy did do a lot of things, did accomplish a lot of things. Now Congress, the House is basically on a standstill. So every, nothing can get done until you get a new speaker. And, you know, I think his point was progress had been made from the, where we had been previously in you know, it's hard when you have a five-seat majority to do anything much faster. Um, I guess, and a lot of people are like, okay, so Matt, you, 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 you blew the thing up and, you know, now we're going to have to get a new election. Like, what's your plan? Like, what's, what's the next plan? And I guess what I would like, yeah, exactly. Who wants to take it? Like, like you know, this could, the next guy who gets elected is like, you might only be in there for another two, three, four months too. But... What I would like to see is, you know, even though, you know, Steve Scalise, he's a Louisiana Republican, he's actually Catholic too, it seemed like he's like the next in line or whatever. But I almost feel like it would be better to have somebody who is like, like Matt Gates's favorite. Like, in other words, you know, because it's easy to be a backbencher and bomb thrower, especially when you have a caucus of like a five seat majority, because all you need is five people to say, blow it up, we're done. And you have, you know, 222 Republicans. It'd be nice to get somebody who everyone realizes this guy is like a total freedom caucus, true blue, rock rib, solid conservative, and have that guy be the Speaker of the House. Because you know what? It's going to be hard to govern, you know? And, and in other words, it's, it's almost easy to sit back and say, ah, Paul Ryan stinks. Ah, Kevin McCarthy stinks. Ah, these guys are terrible. It's like, yes, that's easy to say. But once you get into power and you actually have to say, okay, how am I going to get 218 votes to pass this bill? And how, what are we going to do in this negotiation with the, the Democratic Senate and the Democratic White House? Yeah, the, the actual challenge of, of leadership and governing is harder than just being, you know, one of the guys on the bench. So I still, again, I, I'm with you, though. I'm with you in the sense that I've been, I've been very frustrated 
that we've had Republican leaders in both the White House and the, and the Senate and the House who, on the campaign trail, they sound like they're, you know, they sound like Thomas yeah. Jefferson mm-hmm. and they sound, you know, they're like, we're so for, for freedom and everything. And then they get to the small government. Yeah. And then they <laughs> get the into the Congress and they pass yeah. these massive, disgusting omnibus bills that finance the government. I've what heard you, that Jim Jim Jordan's been thrown around. It's not going to happen. It's not uh, going to happen. He won't happen, <laughs> but I would love to see him up there. But he's doing such great work. He's doing great work. We do not want to move him off that committee on the weaponization because right. we need him in that seat. <laughs> well, and if Jim Banks wasn't running for Senate in Indiana, he would have been a good one. So, yeah. So do you have any projections? Like, do we have any projections on when we would get another House speaker? I think, is that even... I mean, you know, by the time some people are downloading this, I think the GOP caucus will have already decided who their number two guy, you know, who their new guy is going to be. And the vote will be fo- uh, formal, like on Tuesday or Wednesday you know, of next week. So, okay. Um, Any guesses? I, I mean, I, we could bet like a candy bar on it or something. It's going to be, if it's not, I mean, the number one pick is going to be Steve Scalise out of Louisiana. And if it's he not him, him, if it's not him, It'll probably be just then no one else will have wanted it. And they'll just basically say to Patrick uh, McHenry, the guy who's currently in the temporary spot, like, I guess it's you, but I still say it's going to probably be Steve Scalise. He's been preparing himself for it for a long time. And it's just kind of funny he's, because he's also battling cancer right now. I mean, he's in treatment. Right. Yes. So, well, and he was the man who was shot by the Bernie bro. If you remember, the, there was that uh, congressional softball practice and someone who was hopped up on Bernie Sanders, you know, Psych, psycho socialism stuff brought a gun and started shooting at these guys and if it weren't for the fact that Steve Scalise had just been elected into the leadership team and had security detail there might have been a lot of congressmen and women that have been murdered that day Steve as it was had to spend a lot of time in the hospital in recovery uh, and he's back at it so I mean the the I'm hey I'm rooting for him I bet it is office one time that's so, right. We, that was cool. I was with you. We were in the office. We're like, look they at the They let me staff. in. I don't know why. They let me in. It was cool. Was that on January 6th? No, I'm kidding. No, no, it was not it was January not. 6th. No, Josh, Nowhere do not do this DC. to me. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was at our one of our annual get-togethers with Catholic Vote. It was very cool. So, uh, yeah, so we'll keep you posted on that. It'll be, I mean, we basically, the, we had to cover two of the biggest issues. And we're barely scratching the surface. Like there was so much that happened this past week. Uh, maybe we should do another one. Let me know if you want two. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to add to my workload, I could do another uh, loop cast. I don't know. Pogo goes over crazy. time. Bonus episodes. Jeez. Um, yeah. Do you want anyway. it twice a week? Let's do it. Cool. Yeah. Do you want it twice a week? I, maybe we'll, it. we got to give the people what they want. But I feel like we we get enough Josh for one week. You know what I mean? <laughs> um. So. What about me? No. <laughs> No, Erica, maybe we'll just do, we should just do an individual Erica show. <laughs> you just come on and you can talk about uh, your thoughts. When I retire from homeschooling, then, then maybe we can do that. But uh. <laughs> Cool. Well, while we move into the Twilight Zone, and that was not my, my bad diss of Josh. Josh, please, please forgive me. Uh, so you thought we were going to talk about it. We are going to talk mm-hmm. about it. Someone did pull the fire alarm during a vote. Okay, now. <laughs> during a vote for the House of Representatives, right? That's right. For the House of Representatives. For the so, so this is uh, <laughs> Representative Jamal Bowman. And I mean, all time excuse for pulling a fire alarm. It was a door, a very well-known door in Congress. He said uh, that it was confusing, and that door was locked. And he thought that this 
bright red thing that said alarm fire. fire alarm on it that you had to pull would somehow open the door in front of him and was shocked to find out that it did not open the door it actually set off the fire alarm i mean so he he's sticking to that story i i don't i don't that is this is a total clown show moment, but that's not even the Twilight Zone because I mean, that I New feel York's like not sending their best. You know, we expect politicians <laughs> to be able to be lie more effectively and more believably. I mean, it's not even a good no. lie. Come on, man, step up your game. So that's not even not even the best part because, of course, he got trolled by everyone else in there. I think like Marjorie Green Taylor went over there and was like, "Hey, this is the door that he was in. This this is the fire alarm that he pulled. Like, it's pretty obvious." But uh, he he's his team sent out a memo. Uh, to the press for how to respond, which, you know what, to be fair, tough spin zone, try to defend your guy for pulling the fire alarm during a vote. And <laughs> the quote is, uh, I believe Congressman Bowman, when he says it was an accident, Republicans need to instead focus their energy on Nazi members of their party before anything else. One of the talking points read from this memo. So instead of just apologizing for freaking out and pulling the fire alarm, he's firing back while well, those Nazis are the real problem. And uh, so he did say that the memo would happen without his knowledge. I, do I believe that? I don't know. It's up to you. But I mean, what an all time pulling the Nazi card. Oh, my god! You got to tuck your tail for a fire. Yeah. OK. Can I read Mary Catherine Ham's quip on this? OK. I let my, my girl, Mary Catherine Ham, hammer time. She wrote, the congressman's office did not know the use of the term Nazi would set off rhetorical alarms. They thought calling people Nazis was what opened rhetorical doors. This can all be very confusing. <laughs> it's like sweet Mary oh, Catherine. Man. That was that. You see what she did there? You got that. Yeah. You see the clip Pretty of funny. her on? I think it was Bill. Bill, Bill Maher. Mar yeah, she, she owned just, Bill Maher. Yep. Bill Maher and Sam Harris. They both hate Trump in the fiber they're yeah. being. And she came on and was like, "Well, you know the Russia stuff was fake, right? Like it was all fake." Like, no, no, not really. Like, it was different. Like, no, it's all fake. It's all documented. It was all fake. She's <laughs> so awesome. don't tell don't talk to me about elections being stolen in 2020 when you spent three years talking about 2016 being stolen and she she just went off. It was great. Good job. Yeah, she ain't afraid of those. Bill dudes. Mar Bill Maher's been fun lately. The Ron DeSantis interview with Bill Maher was actually was great. I was like, if Ron had been talking like that six months ago. We'd be in a different place, I yep. think. So yeah. it, it was, it's worth a it's worth a watch. Worth yeah. a what might have been? What might have been? been. <laughs> Erica, your twilight zone. Yeah, I'm I, I'm torn here. I have one that's sort of tragic and amusing, and one that's just tragic. I'm gonna go with tragedy. Uh, we've had a few people write in and ask if we could just highlight what's going on with um, Armenians over in Azerbaijan, which is a little country. Uh, right south of the country Georgia, not the state Georgia, um, and it's so Armenia. Those of you um, who know, you know, 20th century history have probably heard of the Armenian genocide when the Turkish government basically slaughtered millions of Armenian Christians. Ethnic cleansing, ethnic cleansing of the Armenians, who are Armenians are primarily characterized by their Christian faith, right? So they're they are hereditarily, you know, racial. They're, Christian. they're Christians, though. And they're sandwiched between all of these Muslim countries in the Middle East. Um, after the Armenian genocide in Turkey, uh, there was territory carved out for them in what's traditionally been their homeland of Armenia. Uh, Azerbaijan government has been uh, slowly encroaching on that territory. There have been military strikes. And um, unfortunately, 
many Armenians are fleeing in sort of a reverse, a reverse flight from Azerbaijani cont contested territory back into Armenia for safety. Um, it, it's tragic. It's terrible. There's one town where there are 120,000 Armenian Christians and 105,000 of them left. So we're talking just, you know, devastating. People are suffering. People are living in their cars on roads. There's no water. It's very dry territory. So I just wanted to highlight that for my Twilight Zone and, and ask everyone to please pray uh, for the Armenians. If you want a really great read on the Armenian genocide to get to, get to know what this people has been through, there's a novel, I'll link it, called The 40 Days of Musa Die, and it's about a group of Armenians who resisted the Turkish, um, the Turkish genocide. And they, it's a wonderful book written by Franz Werfel, who wrote The Song of Bernadette and, you know, was not himself Catholic when he wrote these um, novels. So I will link that. Uh, please pray for Armenia. Please pray for all persecuted Christians. Um, you know, while we feel the suffering here from a white martyrdom, there are people around the world actually suffering, you know, red martyrdom. So continue to pray for the persecuted church. That's my, that's my highlight. And if you want to hear a robust discussion with someone with personal experience, I actually did do an interview. Yeah, with, I cannot wait. Uh, her name is Simone Rizkala. She is Armenian and she's Ar Armenian Egyptian because her family had to flee uh, to Egypt during the Armenian genocide. And I, it, it's so hard to even put in words when you talk to someone so familiar with such suffering. I mean, I had chills for most of the interview, but she was so articulate. And it, one of the interesting things is, is like people forget th that our Christian heritage actually comes from that region. Right. Like Noah's Ark landed in Armenia and the official state religion of Armenia is Chris was Christianity in like 300 AD, I think. So it was, it was actually before uh, it was the Edict before of Milan the Edict came of out Milan, where it became right. legal. So they are Christian to the core. I, I think I asked her like, so most of them are, most of Armenians are Christian, right? She's like, there's no difference. Armenian is Christian. It's a part, it's like ethnic Christianity. Right. Like, that is such a mm -hmm. interesting concept. It's so, so foreign not to American, me. Like, I right? really got to, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to go into that. Yeah. I was like, man, I kind of am jealous sometimes. Like when I, when I hear that, or I look at Jews who are ethnically Jewish, I'm like, that is, it's one and the same. There's no difference. It's not like you picked it up. She had, she had some amazing insights on that. She's so well-educated. I'm really looking forward. I have to edit that one up. So that's coming, coming out soon, but. Uh, we heard the calls. We heard a lot of people say, it's not getting enough coverage. Uh, please highlight it. And I was just so happy that Simone took the time to come on and share her story. It was, it was amazing. So keep an eye out for that one. That's coming out soon. Josh. So I have two items for it was Twilight a feast. Zone. The fire hose. Two for one. I told you it's a feast. And I, gotta, I, and I get Golden Corral Buffet. I get to tie them together, which is kind of fun. So Sweet. the first part of the Twilight Zone is, of course, we had the uh, uh, the death of uh, longtime Senator Dianne Feinstein from California. She was the one that accused uh, Amy Coney Barrett of saying that she had the dogma lives loudly in you, which is so cute when an insult is actually a badge of honor. Like it I mean, was awesome. The, I would love that. Like you get up to St. Peter and like let's talk about your life. Like well, the dogma lives loudly in me. Um, <laughs> Sweet. So Gavin Newsom the communist governor of California has to pick somebody to replace him. He picks a woman from Maryland. That's the Twilight Zone feature of it. But her name is LaFonza Butler because he wanted to pick a black woman to replace her. And she's actually a lesbian black woman. 
But the bigger thing about this, everyone's teeing up on is like, oh, she's from Maryland. That's crazy. And oh, you got to check off all the boxes. She's, you know, LGBT. She's black. She's a woman. The real thing here is she's one of the Democratic Party's biggest fundraisers. She's the president of Emily's List, which raises millions and millions and millions of dollars specifically from people who love legal abortion. So just imagine this. If one of the senators from Texas died and the governor of Texas decided to take the head of that National Rifle Association and make him the next senator from Texas, that this is what the equivalent of this is. It's just like unheard of. Like it, it it's so like literally you've got what, 20 million people that live in, in California and this is the best person you could come up with. Like, well, she spent three years here in California in charge of a, a government union. Oh, great. Even worse. So that's the big, that's, that's, that's a major twilight zone for me. You know, I, I think he's doing it because he wants to run for president and then he can go to the pro board groups. Like I literally took one of the, the head of NARAL and made her a senator. Yep. How could you not support me? So that's to me, presidential politics 101, not what's best for the state of California. No doubt. My second twilight zone is that the United States Postal Service has announced a new forever stamp. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course. <laughs> so, this is just kind of interesting to me, right? And <laughs> Vice President Kamala Harris is so excited about it, you know. She said, Ginsburg broke barriers her entire life, a fierce legal mind, relentless advocate for justice, progress and equality. The forever stamp is a beautiful tribute to her life and legacy. Well, I have to say, kudos to Benji Sarlin. He's a conservative opponent. He said, you know, to put this in perspective, Amy Coney Barrett could buy a stamp now and still use it at the same price in 2059 when she'd be the same age as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was <laughs> when she left the court. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send Amy Coney Barrett a sheet of the stamp. How about that? <laughs> uh, I think she might get offended on that, but yeah, I think that's right. pretty funny. <laughs> that's true. Don't take it the There's wrong way. There's been a few charges from Loopcast listeners that you're a little bit ageist mm. uh, when it comes to ser serving uh, serving in the Senate and for president. What, what would you say back to that? Well, it's kind of funny. I, you know, At the most recent Loopcast thing, somebody made a comment that that old guy wasn't letting you talk. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Did you see that? I thought it was pretty. Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't know. I didn't know if you read the comments. I didn't have the heart to bring it yeah, to you. But yeah, I know. The, the, the people want to hear me it's speak. Probably Josh, like your cousin or something who wrote that. But um, <laughs> your mom. Yeah. No, it's my burner account actually. I, was mad. <laughs> I love this like ageist comment. Like, look, I, I I would be perfect. You know, we have a minimum age requirement to serve in the House, in the Senate, in the White House. Um, I think there should be a maximum age too. And I wouldn't have a problem with it being applied to the, the Supreme Court as well. Like, I mean, you know, what the idea that, you know, like this, the stand up comic made this joke about, and this is before Dan Feinstein had passed. He said, you know, the Cobb salad was invented in 1933. And he went through the whole process of this, this family in California that started all these vaudeville theaters because the miners, you know, they get done, they'd be mining for gold and, 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 had these theaters up and down all through the San Francisco and Los Angeles and he events the Cobb salad in 1935 and he's telling this whole story and everyone's like, what, where is he going with this? And he goes, two years before that, Diane Feinstein was born. 
(laughs) Like, my goodness, you know, and it's just like to put it in perspective, like, why is she governing? It's like, listen, and I like, you know, Chuck Grassley. He's a good conservative senator from Iowa. He's been great on judicial nominations, but I don't know if he's 88 or 90 or whatever years he is old. It's like, is there no one else in Iowa that could carry the torch for freedom? Like, why do you have to stay in power for so many decades? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, especially when Feinstein's getting like wheeled in, basically. She was, yeah, she was being wheeled in. She doesn't understand. And and she couldn't understand why to say yay or nay. I mean, it was, it was was so sad. It was so sad. They're just not there. And you see, you see this, you watch, you just watch footage of President Biden trying to give a press conference and it's painful to watch. And same with, um, uh, oh my gosh, brain. Well, yeah, my point was, yeah. My point was, well, yeah, Mitch McConnell. Uh, Mitch McConnell, my, thank you. My point Holy was smoke. that 80 is enough, that there should be a maximum age. Like, after you're 80 years old, do you have something to contribute to society still? Sure, but maybe elective office isn't for you at that point, once you're 81, 82, 83 years old. And if that were put in place literally this minute, yes, that would preclude, I suppose, both Biden and Trump from serving because, you know, once you hit 80, you're, you're timed out. Um, but again, deal. I, I'd take that deal. It's like, and that's not against Trump. I'm not trying to say against Trump at all. I'm just like, we have these people who have been serving in, in Congress. Like, you know, once you hit 80 years old, I mean, things start to get slow. And I mean, I think there's and gosh, a chance. Just like go enjoy your twilight years. I mean, it's a kindness to them too. Like go enjoy right. what you built yeah. and, and raise up, mentor the next generation. Right. And you're getting wheeled in and, and, you know, your your uh, handlers are actually running the show because that's like Diane Feinstein was that well hey it sounds like you're against this bill she goes I don't know what you're talking about like yeah actually you sent a press release out on that and like oh uh I did <laughs> yeah it's so bad it is terrible yeah, but I look we we have uh, people listening to this that are are uh, of octogenarians of advanced age yep. how, how do I how do I say that I I don't obviously I don't want to offend any people I love my grandparents like my grandma just turned. Uh, not the outer, but she's in her seventies and she just had a birthday and like, she's one of the most wonderful people in my life. I love her so much. Just because you're of a certain age doesn't mean you can't do certain things. And we're not, we're not trying to say like, you don't have anything to contribute. Of course you do. And of course there's plenty of people that are still sharp in their eighties that still can do really amazing things. But like, right. Well, the pressure that is put on people in their eighties mm-hmm. to travel, like what's required of someone that as a politician, especially in the Senate, especially like in the U S Senate where you have to travel all the time, you have to speak in front of people, you, you raise money. You, there's a lot of things that have to be done. Exactly. Raise money. It's, 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 it's okay. I think it's okay to say, yes, you're still sharp, talented. You have plenty of things to do, but you don't have to serve in the Senate. Like that's all we're trying to say. We're not trying to, we're not trying to put anyone down for being older. Like old people, like elderly people are amazing. Like I love my elderly. Hopefully player. I'll be one someday. You, you can contribute in many ways after your career in the House and the Senate's over. Like the fact is when, we decided as a country, not us, it was done generations before us, when FDR was, you know, I did not care for FDR and his policies, but he was a fantastic politician. He understood how to get things done, get things, you know, get himself reelected. He was, you know, he was like it, unbelievable. He got elected four times. I mean, like no one could stop this guy. And we realized that every once in a while, you might have a character or a person who's so gifted at the levers of power and getting reelected that you have to make sure, wait a minute, we need to protect ourselves and we have to have 
term limits. So we put term limits in for the presidency, right? I'm not, and I think that I think that's fine. Rather than having term limits for the House and the Senate, I would just say again, 80s and up. So because you know, not many people are going to get elected to the House when they're 25 and serve 55 years. You know, I'm, I don't I don't think that's the concern. But there are advantages to being an incumbent, and people are like, well, he wants to keep running, and it'd be hard to challenge him in a primary, so we'll just kind of go along with it. I think that's a thing in our system we need, need to fix, and I think a maximum age would be a good way to do it. Look, I'll say it right now. If we can get this 80 term limit passed, I'll say 80 is enough for this podcast. If I'm 80, I'm giving it up. No more Luke Cast. What does that give us? Josh, like you'd be 70 years? Would you be like 100, 110, something like that? I think that's enough. No one would want to see that's us right. behind no the mic no at that point. To see that. So true. We'd, we'd be... Yeah, we'd be playing cards and fishing and listening to Outlaw right. Country. It's a deal. It'd be, it'd be a we will time. all retire. Deal. Yep. Okay. Deal's made. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us, actually, no, we got a sweet, we got a sweet review. So some people I do splash have to us go. with I have reviews to go. because I, I, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I shed a piece. I'll, I'll do, do a your quick, quick review thing. I'll um, listen. Quick review thing. Erica's here in the audience. <laughs> so people splashed me with some reviews because I stayed up till 2.30 editing the uh, the flop debate episode. Not that the episode that we did wasn't good, but the debate was a total right. flop. But someone said that, uh, hate news, love Loopcast. Today's episode was golden. You have to listen to know why. That's Thank you. awesome. You like our inside jokes. You like our gold jokes. That was just hey, low-hanging fruit if I've ever had it. That'll keep us going. Thanks for loving the gold bar jokes because that was... A we're little at, corny. We're at 377. We're at 377. I've been keeping track on Apple Podcasts. If you also want to help us, Spotify is another place you can re- leave reviews. And then uh, the inbox, uh, loopcast at catholicboat.org. You could talk to me. I love talking to you guys. But thank you so much for listening. And uh, stay tuned for some new interviews coming out. Uh, the last one we did was actually with Brian and Josh in person. Uh, that was a really fun project for me. Uh, I was able to hopefully get some good insights out of the men who started Catholic Vote, the reason we're in the chair. So. Go check out that one if you like. And until next time, we will see you on Thursday. Bye, guys.